are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We are taking a slow crawl through the first half of chapter one. Uh, This is our third week uh, in just really making it through 11 verses. We're going to cover three verses this morning. The reason why we're taking such a slow crawl through the first half of chapter one is because of how foundational it is to uh, not only understanding the book of Acts, but also to understanding actually what it means to be a Christian. And what we've seen so far in this book is that it was written by a guy named Luke, and he starts by highlighting for us a significant period of time in Jesus' life and his ministry. If you've been here with us the past couple weeks, you know what I'm referring to. This is these 40 days that Jesus spends with his disciples after his resurrection and yet before he ascends to heaven. And I mentioned this last week, but one of the things that Luke does in his writing is oftentimes he'll zoom out and give a summary statement of what happened and then come back and zoom in and give more specific details about how those things went down. Here's what I mean. Acts 1 verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke says in his first book, which is the gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this is everything from his birth, but more specifically, this is his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching. Ultimately, it's pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection, after which he spends 40 days with his disciples, proving to them that he is alive, and then he ascends into heaven. And if you picked up on it there, Luke summarizes these 40 days in two ways. One, Jesus made it his attempt to prove to them that he was alive. And the second thing is he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. In week one of this series, we spent time on the first one, that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. That the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal son of God, like Philippians 2 says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is through his death on that cross in our place that the penalty for our sin has been paid in full, which means that we are no longer defined by all the reasons why we don't measure up, and we are no longer defined by all the things that would and should disqualify us from being welcomed into a relationship with God, no longer defined by those things, here's why, because all of our guilt, sin, and shame was counted on him, and all of his perfect righteousness and life is counted for us. Church, Jesus Christ laid his life down in your place, amen? Only he didn't just die. Verse three says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. If Jesus isn't alive, then all it means is that he was willing to die for our sins, but he is not powerful enough to defeat it. But because he is alive, we can be confident that all of our sin has been paid for because every single one of your and my sins was future sin when Jesus went to the cross to pay for it and when he three days later walked out of the tomb. And last week, we talked about the second way that Luke summarizes these 40 days. He says, not only did Jesus prove to them he was alive, but he spent time 
talking with them about the kingdom of God. Look at verse six. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the post-resurrected, pre-ascended Jesus says that the purpose for his disciples, for the church, until he returns is that we would be his witnesses. That we would spend every bit of our lives testifying to the world this purpose, being his witnesses, testifying to the world that we have been forgiven of our sin, reconciled to God, and commissioned by him to share that good news with the world around us. This is what Luke means in verse one when he says that in the first book he covers all that Jesus began to do and teach because listen to this, Jesus is still working. He's still teaching, only now he's doing that work through us, his church, as we testify to who he is and what he's done with our lives and our lips. And again, we are taking a lot of time through the first few verses of chapter one because of how foundational it is to understand the book of Acts, but more importantly, to understand what it means to be a Christian. We see that Jesus is alive, he's commissioned us to be his witnesses, and then we'll see today that he is the ascended king. Look at, back at verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was, what's the word there? Taken up. So again, Luke gives us a zoomed out version of the ascension. And he summarizes it in those two words. It's actually one word in the original language. He just says Jesus was taken up. And then in verse nine, he comes back and he zooms in. And he's gonna give us more details about how this went down. Verse nine, and when he had said these things, real quick, what are these things that Jesus just said? He just responded to their question in verse six of when they ask, is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning is now the time that you're gonna do what was promised to the people of God all the way back to Abraham and David that this Messiah was gonna come, that he was gonna rescue and redeem the people of God, that he was ultimately gonna establish a kingdom and that this Messiah would rule on the throne forever. And they're essentially asking, is now the time? Are you, Jesus, gonna put an end to all this nonsense as they look at the pain and the difficulty and the circumstances of their lives and they go, surely we can't hang on much longer in any of this. Is now the end? And Jesus essentially says, guys, this is only the beginning. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Those are the things that he just said. Look back at verse nine. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So the ascension of Jesus, I think, is the, is the aspect of the work of Christ that most Christians are the least familiar with. What I mean by that is that most of the time, if you come into a room like this on a Sunday morning, whether it's our church or a different one, you are gonna hear things about uh, the incarnation 
or the, his perfect sinless life or his resurrection, his sacrifice for us on the cross, right? And yet, what becomes clear as you read Acts 1 is that Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not only the resurrected Christ, he is the ascended king. And you can make the argument that Luke actually highlights the ascension more than anything else at the beginning of this book, which again, this book is about the spread of the Christian church through the first century world. And Luke, right at the beginning, is gonna highlight for us this reality that Jesus is not just resurrected, but he is ascended. And the reason why is because the ascension is actually what sets into motion the whole book of Acts and ultimately the mission of the church. Because like we said before, Jesus didn't simply just rise from the dead and go straight to heaven. You ever thought about that? He could have. He, he very well could have, but he didn't just rise from the dead and go straight to heaven. He spent almost six weeks with them, appearing to them and proving that he was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God, telling them about this Holy Spirit, this power that was gonna come on them in just a few days, and then commissioning them to be his witnesses. And what we just read in verse nine to 11 is Jesus's final physical encounter with his disciples. And Luke highlights that here in Acts 1. He also highlights it at the end of his gospel in Luke 24 because it is a significant moment for them and it is a significant moment for us that we would see and know that Jesus' story doesn't end with him crucified on a cross or laid in a tomb or even resurrected from the dead. He wants us to know that Jesus is the ascended king. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to answer three questions about Jesus' ascension. What, why, and how? It's gonna be our outline this morning. What actually happened at the ascension? Why does it matter? And what should we, or how should we respond? How should we respond? What, why, and how? Let's consider the first one together. What actually happened? And we'll spend most of our time on that. Verse nine. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Here's what we just read. 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were eyewitnesses to his physically, physical bodily ascension. They actually saw it. That's what this phrase, as they were looking on, means. It means they were watching him, right? It means they didn't just run into town to grab something for lunch and then come back and wonder, where did Jesus go? Where'd he go? And I don't know why, um, but what came to mind when I was working on this was the movie Space Jam. Um, now, I'm really taking a segment of you here. That's why not many people laughed, okay? Because this is, basically, if you're 30 to 40 years old and male, is really all I'm working with here. Um, if you're not familiar with the movie, there's this scene near the beginning of the movie where Michael Jordan is golfing with Larry Bird and Bill Murray and then Newman from Seinfeld. Two of you got that, you're welcome. Um, and he's golfing because he's retired from basketball and now he's fully devoted his life to God's game, okay? And he hits this, this uh, hole in one and as he, someone's taking a picture of him and as he goes, reaches in to grab uh, the ball out of the hole, Bugs Bunny, kid you not, reaches up from underneath, grabs him, snatches him down into Looney Tune land, okay? That's what happens in the movie. It's an absolute classic, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> the point is, that's not what happened to Jesus, okay? <laughs> Nobody laughed at the eight o'clock on that. <laughs> Listen to this, Luke says, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, 
Okay, what's really interesting about this is this, he was lifted up in verse nine is a different word than what we see in verse two. In verse two, it says he was taken up, which is in the original language is translated, it's a word that means to lift or to raise, literally. But this word here means to lift or to raise literally, but it can also mean uh, lift or raise in a figurative sense, which is more like our English word exalt. And that's what Jesus or Luke is saying the disciples saw with Jesus, that he was lifted up, that he was actually going up literally, but he was also figuratively figuratively lifted. And And it's the same way if you think about it with the English word ascension, because you can ascend to the top of a mountain, which means that you actually go up. Or you can ascend to the top of a company, which means that you are figuratively going up, okay? And so as his disciples were watching, Jesus ascends both literally and figuratively until they can no longer see him. Look at verse nine. What does the Bible say takes him away? A cloud, okay? And if you're like me, your mind goes immediately back to elementary school science class, and you start to wonder, what kind of cloud are we talking about here? Cirrus? Stratus, cumulonimbus, you know? The answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, I did look those up because I don't remember elementary school science class. And no, it's a different type of cloud altogether. This is more like the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness after the Exodus. This is the type of cloud that rested on the mountain as Moses goes up to meet with God and he receives the the law, right? This is the cloud that envelops Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as God the Father bestows and confirms, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased, right? This type of cloud in the Bible always points to a specific manifestation of God's presence. I want you to see this, Luke's telling of the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9, Luke 9 should be on the screen. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That's important, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Luke says that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure that would take place in Jerusalem. What's that talking about? This departure that would take place in Jerusalem. He's not talking about the cross. He's not talking about the resurrection. He's actually pointing forward to the ascension. And and what's interesting is the word departure here is actually the Greek word that would be translated exodus. So stay with me here, okay? This is a crazy idea. As Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, Peter, James, John are getting a glimpse of the glorified Jesus, the glorified Son of God. Before he dies, before he's resurrected, they're taking this all in, okay? And then the Bible says that Moses and Elijah show up and they start talking with Jesus about the Exodus. And Moses is familiar with an Exodus, isn't he? God uses Moses to rescue and redeem the people of God out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. And so as Moses is talking about this exodus and looking back at what God has done, Jesus shifts the conversation toward what God would do. And this other departure, where God would rescue and redeem not his people out of slavery in Egypt, but out of oppression and slavery to sin and death. It's unbelievable. 
Luke actually hints at this again in chapter nine, verse 51. He says, when the, it'll be on the screen, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now we know what happens in Jerusalem. Jesus is falsely accused, he's arrested, he's beaten, mocked, crucified for our sins, and then three days later, resurrects from the dead. And yet when Luke's talking about the work of Christ, he doesn't point to any one of those things. What's he point to? The ascension. When the day, when it became near for him to be taken up, because the end of the story isn't Jesus as the resurrected Christ, it is him as the ascended king. Look at verse nine. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, that means looking intently, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So as they're trying to take all this in, this is like um, if you have a MacBook and you, it starts getting a little bit older and you try to just do something and you get the rainbow wheel of death. You're just trying to compute it all, right? And you don't know what's going on. They're just gazing intently, just trying to figure out what's happened. Luke says two men show up with them and he clearly wants us to understand these weren't just regular men. These were angelic messengers. Let me tell you why. Two words in verse 10 show us that these weren't regular men. One is the word white when he says white robes. The word doesn't just mean white like a fresh clean shirt like we would think about because that didn't exist naturally in the first century. This was, it's the same word in Luke 9 we read that Jesus is described as being dazzling apparel. Same word. So he's pointing to something supernatural. Another word he says behold. Okay, That word means look and see. And this is consistent with Luke's gospel. This is what he says in Luke 2 when the angels show up declaring to the shepherds that there's a baby who's been born, but it's not like any other baby. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the Messiah. It's the same thing an angel show up at the tomb when Jesus' disciples show up the next morning after he's put in there and the angels declare he isn't there anymore. He's risen. He's resurrected. The same thing happens here in Acts declaring that Jesus hasn't just disappeared. He's ascended. Right? And, and this is why they ask the question they do in verse 11. Look with me. He said, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which, when you read that, that's a silly question, isn't it? Um, and if I missed you on the Space Jam reference, I'm about to get you here. This one applies to the, the entire human experience, all right? You ever been to um, a Mexican restaurant and you're starving? And so what are you doing? You're pounding chips and salsa. That is general human experience, everybody, okay? And men in, from age 30 to 40. But you have never been more thirsty in your life because of how salty it is and the salsa or whatever. And so you, you just drink all your water. And then your server comes by and he asks, hey, would you like something else to drink? Would you like a refill? And you look at him like, my food's not even here yet. Of course I would, right? Like you look at him like, are you kidding me? What a silly question. Um, and that's sort of how I think the disciples picture or picture them responding to these angels. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? They're like, are you kidding me? What a silly question. Did you just see what we just saw? I mean, the Lord Jesus wrapped in this glory cloud just ascended. He was exalted. He was taken up. And you stand here, ask us why we're looking. Uh, but again, the angel's task here in Acts 1 is to make clear what happened to Jesus. He didn't just vanish he ascended. Look at verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Um, if you read the gospel accounts about these 40 days, 
what you will see is Jesus actually disappears and reappears a lot, right? He, he just shows up. They're in the room praying, hiding, scared. The resurrected Jesus shows up. Peace be with you. He's gone. And then he shows up the, on the, to these two men on the road to Emmaus and he has a meal with them and, and they recognize that it's Jesus and then the Bible literally says, he's gone. So it's back and forth and this is happening again. This is why the angels came to declare and to show to these guys that Jesus hasn't just disappeared. It's just, they're wondering, they're looking up in heaven going, is this it? Maybe he's gonna reappear. Where, he, where is he gonna come back? And they're showing him, the angels are saying to the disciples, Jesus has gone to where he told you he would go. Okay, the night before Jesus died on the cross for our sins and his disciples' sins, he has this extended conversation with his disciples in the upper room, and John records it for us. Listen to part of this and what Jesus says in John 14, again, the night before he dies on the cross. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The angels show up at the ascension to confirm to the disciples, this is where Jesus went. That he has gone back to the Father. Three times in verse 11, they describe where Jesus goes as heaven. They use the word heaven and that's significant. The point is, that Jesus isn't somewhere else in the world or somewhere else in the universe. He isn't snatched down into Looney Tune land or in outer space. The point is that in the ascension, Jesus actually leaves time and space and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, to the throne where Romans 8 says he sits even now. And the angels in verse 11 reassure the disciples, this Jesus will come in the same way that you saw him go. Meaning there, there's a day coming where the sky's gonna crack open and the physical, bodily, resurrected Jesus will come back. He's not gonna be a spirit. He's gonna be the way he went. The actual Jesus is coming back. And he will, uh, at the exact moment, remember he said up here, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. It means right now, God knows when that day is coming. And not a moment before, not a moment after, Jesus will return to fully and forever bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. That is what happened at the ascension. 40 days after the resurrection, the disciples were eyewitnesses to Jesus' physical bodily ascension from earth to the throne of God, all right? Here's our second question. Why does that matter? Why does the ascension matter? There, there are dozens of ways that you can answer that question according to the Bible. I'm gonna give us just a couple of categories to think about this, because I think this will be helpful, um, hopefully helpful here in a moment. Uh, here are the categories, inauguration and initiation. Jesus' ascension marks the end of his earthly ministry, and it inaugurates his heavenly rule and reign and initiates what we call the church age. Here's what I mean. Jesus is the eternal son of God who has always been and will always be. There was never a moment in time where he didn't exist or started to exist. He has always been and will always be. And he, his rightful place is ruling and reigning over every square inch of creation, okay? But 
He doesn't leave us on our own to try to find a way out of our own mess, but he came, he took on flesh, he lived a life that we could never live, he died the death we deserve to die, paying the penalty for our sins in full, and after 40 days with his disciples, proving to them he was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God, he ascends to heaven again to take his rightful place, to rule and reign with all power and all authority at the right hand of God the Father for every, over every square inch of creation, and the ascension completes the work of Christ, Because like Hebrews 10 says, it proves the full acceptance of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice for sins. If God doesn't let him back in, then we still got work to do. But the ascension, this, this return to his heavenly enthronement proves to us that God fully accepts Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. This is what is what I meant by the ascension marks the end of his earthly ministry and it inaugurates his heavenly rule and reign. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about what Jesus is doing right now? You ever thought about what he's doing right? We just just basically said it. He is at the right hand of God the Father, according to the Bible, which is inerrant and infallible. He is at the right hand of God the Father. He is ruling and reigning over all of creation. And specifically, the Bible would say he's ruling and reigning over his church. But there's something else the Bible says that he's doing right now. I mentioned it earlier, but I want you to see this. It's not from me. I'm not making this up. This comes from God. Romans 8 on the screen. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If you know Romans 8, it starts with, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he's telling us why. Because here's the thing about you and me. We all have reasons in our life, in in our actions, the things we do, the things we think, the things we say that would condemn us. That should condemn us. But the Bible can confidently say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, verse 32, he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. And how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Here's why. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who raised and the one who is at the right hand of God who indeed is, what's the word? interceding for us. You need to wrap your mind around this. The eternal son of God who completed for us what we could never do for ourselves doesn't just die, raise again. He ascends to the right hand of the father where he is ruling and reigning over every square inch of creation, has power and authority to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants. And you know what he chooses to do? Pray for you. What? What? He prays for, he pleads your case for you and me. First John two says it this way. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate. Now, the Bible will also say that we have an enemy. Revelation would call him the accuser of the brethren. But in Christ, we have an advocate. This reminds me of the hymn, Before the Throne, of God above, specifically the third verse, it goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. You ever been there? You ever been in that spot in your life where you did the thing that you swore to yourself and to God that you would never do again and you are flooded? Your heart and your mind is consumed with guilt and shame and these thoughts that say, God could never love you. How could you? You swore you would never do it again, and then here you are, this guilt and shame, this accusation that says, hey, you can't let anyone find this out because if they find it out, they won't love you either. 
and we're flooded with these thoughts of guilt and shame and, and he reminds us of, of our sin. And then the, the song goes this. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Church, this is the difference the ascension makes. Jesus' earthly ministry has come to an end. His life, death, and resurrection has forever secured for us access to a relationship with God, but his ascension doesn't mean he's abandoned us. It doesn't mean he's now left us on our own and saying, hope, figure this thing out. No, he right now at the right hand of God the Father at this place of honor and authority is petitioning God and pleading his case. And every time that thought comes into our mind that says, you are a horrible father or you're a terrible pastor, how could you possibly or whatever, Jesus is there praying for me saying, paid for it. And for you, every thought that enters into your mind that says, I can't believe I would possibly do this thing. Nobody could ever love me. Jesus goes, I came, lived, died in your place to forever free you from that. He's, pl- he's praying for us. He's interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father and it draws our attention from our guilt and the accusations of the evil one. We look up and we see him there. Robert Murray McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And church, he is praying for you. The ascension inaugurates his heavenly rule and reign and it initiates the church age. Here's what I mean. In Acts one, before Jesus commissions his disciples as his witnesses, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which is what? The Holy Spirit. And so he says, he's acknowledging, I'm about to commission you to be my witnesses, to live your life testifying to who I am and what I've accomplished for you. And here's the thing, the the Lord Jesus, we talked about this a few weeks ago, he is acknowledging that if we are going to be successful, and I don't mean just you, I mean us, if we church are going to be successful to do what we say every week, go and be the church, which means we live as his witnesses, the Lord Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Spirit comes because he's acknowledging that if we're gonna be successful, we need something far more powerful than our own white-knuckled ability to hang on. And we need more than our own discipline can reach for us. And so he says, you go to Jerusalem and you wait there. And their response is, because this power's coming, they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response, Jesus' response is, it's not about what I'm gonna do, but what are you gonna do? You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. And then listen to this, John 16, this is the same conversation, part of the same extended conversation the night before Jesus dies on the cross. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're sad because he's saying, I'm leaving. That makes sense, right? But he says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the spirit, will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. This verse has always blown my mind. Jesus is saying that having the the indwelling spirit in us is better for us than having Jesus physically with us. He says it's to your advantage if I go away, which this is what I mean, it it inaugurates or initiates the church age because Jesus, the absence of his physical presence is what gives us access to his spiritual presence. 
that it's to our advantage that he goes away. And we're gonna talk a lot about the, the, impact, the way the Spirit empowers us, but it's the ascension of Jesus that initiates the sending of the Spirit and him empowering us as his disciples to be his witnesses. And again, we're gonna talk a lot about how the Spirit empowers us over the next couple of weeks. What you need to know for today is this. No matter what your circumstances or the accusations of the enemy are saying to you, God has not abandoned you. Jesus' ascension is not him leaving or forsaking you. It's actually to our advantage because he has sent us his indwelling spirit. This is why Matthew, in his, into his gospel, when he recounts these conversations, he called the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been what, given to me, Jesus, because I'm going to the right hand of the Father where I'm gonna rule and reign over every square of creation. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Uh, and then at the end, he says what? And behold, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. This is what it's talking about. God hasn't forgotten or abandoned us. Jesus has, Jesus has given us his spirit to be our helper so that we can fulfill the purposes that God has for us. That's why it matters. Here's the last thing. How shall we respond? Look at verse 12. How shall we respond? Verse 12. So they just had this conversation with the angels. We don't know what happens, how long they linger, if they just disappear. But then verse 12 says this. Then... They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is how the disciples respond to Jesus' ascension. We talked uh, last couple weeks. We wanna ask the question here, since this is about the spread of the church in the, in the first century world, what, what is it that they were founded on and formed by? We talked about them being founded on the reality that Jesus is alive, that, that Jesus has given them a new purpose to be his witnesses. And then here we see what founded and formed them is that they were eyewitnesses of the ascended Jesus. That he is not just a resurrected Lord, but he is the ascended king. And here's how they respond. They go to Jerusalem. Remember he said for them to do that. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. So they do what he says. They respond in obedience, but it's not just obedience. They don't just respond in obedience, right? Luke actually gives more detail in the last three verses of his gospel. Luke 24 says this. He led them out as far as Bethany. That's outside of Jerusalem where the Mount of Olives is. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I cut this part out of my sermon because I didn't have time, but I don't care, I'm gonna say it anyways. Um, I love this picture that when, it just says as Jesus is ascending, the last sight that his disciples have of him is not him turning his back on them. I don't know how you pictured that. For me, it's kind of like Mary Poppins and she just goes off, you know, with the thing. The last sight, he says, that as he went, he blessed them, which a, a, a Jewish audience would know means that Jesus is making eye contact with them with his hands out, and we don't know what he said, maybe it was the ironic blessing, it doesn't really matter. The last picture that they have is the Lord Jesus not sending them off saying, don't mess this one up, but with confidence knowing that his power of his spirit was gonna come and indwell them and mobilize them to go do and be something they could never do on their own, and Jesus blessed them and affirms them saying, it's not, this is the best that I can come up with. We are hand chosen by God to be his church, and he blessed them, Verse 52 says, they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
the disciples respond to the ascended king the same way we should. It's worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. But it's not like begrudging obedience. This happens in my house a lot where I tell my kids to do something and after a lot of complaints and conversations, they finally do it and they, don't, they can't find the strength to pick up their feet as they go down the hall. It's just, you know what I mean? Just begrudging obedience. And, and that's funny, but you know what? Most of us live a Christian life that looks a lot like that. Begrudging obedience. Well, I guess if this is what's best for me, that's not what Jesus has invited us into. He says, come this way to life. You want joy, you want satisfaction. It's not chasing those other things. It, the life that you want is found in giving your yes to me. Following after me. It's not begrudging, feet dragging obedience. It's worship and obedience because we were all dead in our sin but now made alive in Christ and it's characterized, if you see that in verse 52, by great joy. Great joy. As you walk through the book of Acts, it goes sideways in a hurry for every single one of these guys. But you know what all the way through the process they're marked by? Worship and obedience with great joy. That's what should be true about us because he has invited us into what he is doing in the world. We get to be his witnesses and you don't have to have all the answers because he gives you his spirit as a helper. Let me pray for us and we'll sing and respond to the good news this morning. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy and even on days like this when life is difficult, when our circumstances aren't what we want them to be, God, would you give us the grace to trust you to believe that your ways are better than our ways, to believe that you haven't left us or forsake us, forsaken us and you never will. Because not only is Jesus the resurrected Christ, but he is the ascended king. God, help us to not just come to church, but to be the church, to live our lives, testifying to who you are and what you have done because you've invited us in. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.